6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 18 through 25. There is a phrase that I want to explore a little bit by Paul, not in this letter, but in, in the, first, the last verse in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Whoa, wait a minute. You know, if you read Paul's letters, you realize he was paranoid. He lived his life under pressure. He's a type A, always driving. Only one wins the race and so forth. And here's a, I've just selected this one of many. It says, lest I, when I preach to others, I myself might be a castaway. What is he afraid of? What is concerning Paul? That he can lose his salvation? Absolutely not. He wrote the book on eternal security. It's called Romans chapter 8. Then what is he so afraid of? That's what we want to explore here a little bit. You know, most people, including Christians, are in one of two camps. Some of them would call themselves Calvinists, and they, they have a view of, social, uh, of uh, eternal security, persevering in the saints. Their concept of eternal security is when you get to the end, if you're saved, you, you, if you are saved, you will be eternally secure. If you don't make it to the end, then, well, you weren't saved in the first place. Well, that's a little, that's a little uh, that lacks usefulness. How can you tell if you're saved? You have to wait till you get to the end. That's why theologians will call that exper uh, experimental uh, predestinarians. Are you predestinated? Well, wait till you get there and you'll find out if you were. You, you follow what I'm saying? Well, the Armenians have a different point of view. They say you, only those that persevere are saved. The Calvinist says if you don't persevere, you weren't saved. They argue about that for 400 years. These two views prevail in the church. You have, most churches are either one or the other. If you come out of the, the, uh, the assemblies of some of those, you're Arminian typically. And if you're in some, most of the Reformation, thing, you're in Calvinism. Anyway, the point is, what's interesting, eternal, let's set aside those two for a minute. Eternal security is bulletproof. Jesus said, if everyone that Father gives me will come to me, and everyone that comes to me will no wise cast out. No one can take him out of my hand. Then in the very next verse, this is John 10, verse 28, 29. My Father who gave them me is greater than all. No one can take him out of my Father's hand. There's two hands, the Son's and the Father's. That's why I say, if you can lose your salvation, I have a new name for God, Butterfingers. And, and there's a whole study on this. If it, if it bothers you, I encourage you to check that out because it's essential to understand how secure you are in Christ in order to go on to the rest of the issues. And if, uh, should not, you should not have any... Uh, we're talking about justification. That was paid for at the cross, 100%. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. If you've accepted Christ, you're nailed. Your passport is stamped, not guilty. You haven't changed yet, but you're justified. Not by anything you've done, 100% by what Christ has done. That's only the beginning of the story, though. You see, there's a third path that's overlooked by many. 
And that's what some people would call the overcomers. It recognizes eternal security as bulletproof. However, there's a distinction made between entering heaven and inheriting heaven. When I visit here, go to the Holiday Inn, sign in, that gives me access that allows me to enter. Last time I looked, I haven't inherited the Holiday Inn chain, okay? <laughs> if I invite you to my home, that'll invite, that gives you access to my home. doesn't give you the right to rearrange my furniture, okay? Now, this issue of inheritance is a big topic in the Scripture, and we need to understand more about it. And that involves the variation of rewards. Now, most of us that have studied the 70 weeks are familiar with the whole layout that Gabriel gave Daniel of that which was coming. And it's so precise, it's the most staggering passage in the entire Bible, where he tells Daniel that from the commandment restored to Jerusalem, which we know, which, which is nailed in the calendar, unto the Mashiach Nagid was 173,880 days, in effect. And the only time, the specific time that Jesus presented himself as a king was what we celebrate as the triumphal entry that's detailed for you in Luke 19. And it turns out when you go through the study of this, the background, Gabriel's margin for error was zero. The exact day he presented, uh, Christ did that. And in fact, he held them accountable. If you read Luke 19, it's a, a shock to realize that he held them accountable for understanding that that was their day. And all that was pinned down in the Old Testament, which is translated into Greek three centuries before the Gospel period. You can check it out. And it's, the precision is one of the most uh, exciting discoveries that you'll make about your Bible. And so anyway, but the real point is of these 70 weeks that, that, that Gabriel outlines, 69 of those are in verse 25. There's one still left in verse 27. Between those two verses, chapter 9, the, the, is verse 26. Because it deals with events that occur after the 69 weeks, but prior to the 70th. So we know they're not contiguous. There's a gap in there. And we need to look at it carefully and understand uh, why that's there. And that, then if you understand the, the last four verses of Daniel 9, everything else in Bible prophecy will fall into place. If you're confused about that, you'll have troubles. In that interval, Jesus, the, the Messiah that presented himself king will be executed, which he was. And the temple and, the, and the, uh, the sanctuary was destroyed by the Romans. So that those things took 38 years. We've experienced that this interval is a, has been the better part of 2000. But we also know from a number of reasons that it's coming to a close. Not setting dates. We don't know exactly when. But we're certainly coming to the end of it for a lot of reasons. Because all the events of the, that follow that are starting to get positioned. So what we... Without getting into all of that, I hope that's a review for you. And, the, and I know you're a well-taught congregation, so we're just dealing with well-traveled ground here. But it's that 70th week. Don't call it the tribulation. Everybody does, but that's a misnomer. I'll explain why. The 70th week of Daniel, that last seven-year period, is the most documented period of time in the Old and New Testaments. So we'll take a look at that. After the interval, there's the so-called 70th week of Daniel, Daniel 9.27. Prior to that, there's the Harpazo. Why is it prior to that? Because that week is defined, 70th week is defined by a treaty that's enforced by a world leader who can't be revealed until after the Harpazo, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. So the Harpazo are commonly called, the, from the Latin, it's called the rapture. And we have this, it's an interval. We don't know if that's one hour or 30 years, but there's an interval before, between the time that the Harpazo takes place, this guy's revealed, he rises to power, and he enforces the covenant which defines that week. 
He defines a, he enforces a treaty, which in the middle of that seven-year period, he violates that treaty. It has a special technical name for a lot of reasons. And none less than Jesus Christ himself labels the last half of that seven-year period, the Great Tribulation. So the Tribulation is three and a half years. Now, everybody connotatively speaks of the seven-year Tribulation. That's technically not correct. Not that it's a big deal. Just be precise if you're going to be in these things. It's from that abomination of desolation until the end that Jesus labels the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24, 15. But the main point, both halves of that week are called three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days in the Old Testament and the New. It's the most documented, that, 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 nothing allegorical here. This is nailed to the wall. Well, we go ahead and make our charts. See that the, the Tribulation gets climaxes in the Battle of Armageddon, which is interrupted by the second coming of Jesus Christ. Praise God. He sets up his kingdom. He comes back twice, once for the church, once for Israel. That launches a period of time that Revelation 20 identifies as 1,000 years. And uh, there's a sheep and goat judgment and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then at the end of the 1,000 years, there's obviously not to scale here, is the great white throne, the big wrap-up. And the earth is burned up. And we have a new heavens and a new earth. And the new Jerusalem comes down and all of that, the last, which is, which is you see most of this on charts and you've probably, I'm sure, studied it. The question I want to raise is, this is the millennium. One of the tragedies in our world is that there's probably one Christian in ten that takes that seriously. Because most churches teach that as allegorical. They don't realize that the millennium is the fulfillment of the irrevocable covenant given David. It's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And uh, in a well-taught Bible church, that's taken for granted. But you need to realize that most denominations that come out of the Reformation have inherited an eschatology that has a tradition of ignoring or, demeaning or, call, or just treating this allegorically. When you preach the, preach the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth that is in heaven, that's what you're talking about. Most people who make, say that prayer have no idea what, the, what they're praying for. But having that said, the real question I want to focus on briefly, what goes on in heaven after the rapture? How many believe in the rapture of the church? Can I see a show of hands? Praise God. What happens next for you? On the earth, we've got all kinds of conjectures that come from the text. We think we know what's going to happen, but there's room for good callers to have some disagreements. What happens to us up there? Well, there's two major events up there. The Bema Seat of Christ. Ooh. We'll talk about that. Let's get, take a look at that. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all, every one of us, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The Bema Seat, as it's called. We must all appear. We're all getting ready for a final exam. Every day that the Lord tarries gives us an additional day to try to repair our report cards and, and value that. What's the procedure? Well, how's that going to work up there? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3. No other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, and he divides his series here in two groups, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble. Those are two foundation possibilities. Gold, silver, precious stones are inflammable. They can sustain fire. Wood, hay, stubble is flammable. 
and you're going to use the idiom at least is fire is going to test this, which kind it is. He goes on. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Don't confuse the use of language here with hell or something like that. The fire is testing the nature of the work. Notice that it's man's work, not the man, man's work. Man's work of what sort it is. It goes on to explain what he means here. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. Praise God. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. So the concept is your work will be tried, it'll be in one of two categories. It'll either be generate a reward or you will have lost that opportunity. You aren't being burned, the work's being burned. Don't confuse the use of language here. To make sure you don't confuse this with, with eternal security issues, the Holy Spirit adds this final clause here. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. In other words, like a refugee. Now, I make the statement often publicly that I think most Christians, when they get to heaven, are going to be disappointed. And that gets everyone's attention. Okay. <laughs> Because many of us have been taught that if you're saved in Christ, you're going to reign with Him. The Scripture doesn't say that. You may have the opportunity to. If so be that you suffer. There's always a, there's always a qualifying phrase. You'll reign with Christ. If so be that you suffer with Him and so forth. The people before the judgment seat are going to be highly diversified. We'll take a look at that. Paul says we are made partakers of Christ if... We hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. You're a partaker, a metakoi, if you, that's one who's sharing in this, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Big if there. There's a condition on that. And you want to qualify that condition if you can. Now let's talk about a spectrum here. Let's, uh, let's talk about a horizontal uh, uh, ordinate here of faithfulness, okay? And there are two groups that will emerge here. At the one extreme are those that were overtaken. They're saved by Christ, but they blew it. Pretty much got a zero, okay? In contrast to the overcomers, to whom is all kinds of promises made. If the overcomer this, then we'll go through. The point is, there's going to be a huge diversity of rewards. And that's something that we're trying to emphasize here. In fact, there are even five crowns defined. I don't think there's five. There may be dozens. There are five that happen to be specifically denoted, denoted in, the, in the Scripture. And uh, we, the people on the left side of this chart, we tend to use the term carnal Christians. They're Christians. They're saved by Christ. And yet, if they were on trial for being Christian, there's no evidence, that would, no evidence to convict them. You can't tell. The neighbors, the family never realize they're sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope I'm being facetious there. Okay, now, the overcomers, there's at least seven specific promises to different overcomers. Uh, in each of the letters seven churches, there's a specific promise to the overcomers, to eat of the tree of life, not heard of the second death, hidden mana, white stone, new name thing, and, and, and uh, power over the nations, white raiment assured, pillar and a new name, to sit with Christ on his throne. That's the positive end of the rewards. They shall inherit all things, is the summary in Revelation 21. 
The crowns are listed. Crown of life for those who have suffered for his sake. The crown of righteousness for those who loved his sake. There's a crown if you just are looking for the rapture. A lot of Christians aren't. They're missing that chance, so to speak. The crown of glory for those who fed the flock. The crown incorruptible for those who press on steadfastly. The crown of rejoicing for those who win souls. These are five that happen to be specifically alluded to in the Scripture. I'm not saying there's only five. There may be 20. I have no idea. Okay? But they're specific, apparently. And uh, Revelation 7. There's another thing that I want to highlight here. A couple of times in Scripture, there's a very strange thing. It says, uh, in Revelation 7, is an example of that. It says, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, shall lead them into the living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. How many have noticed that? See that phrase? It's always puzzled me. I'll explain why in a minute. Wipe away the tears. Again, in Revelation 21, God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. But why is there tears then? There's no shortage of the Word of God. There's no shortage of resources. No death, no pain. Why are there tears? I think I know. But it's a conjecture on my part. I don't, we'll get into this. I think Emerson summarized it for us. Of all the words of tongue or pen, are these, the saddest of, are these, it might have been. I believe, seriously, that at the judgment seat of Christ, as we're confronted, as our life is being reviewed, I think we're going to be stunned to reflect on the lost opportunities. Not just things we've done wrong. Okay, we know that. We're forgiven because God will forgive us those. But we could have borne fruit, and we didn't. It isn't the bad things alone. It's the time we wasted as we look back at our life and realize, oh my goodness, I could have, oh, I could have, I sure could have done something with that. I did, oh, I didn't. And you, as you get confronted with what it might have been if we had our priorities right. We are in a brief boot camp. See, our responsibilities in the kingdom are being determined by our performance here in this brief little interval called life. We're qualifying ourselves for the responsibilities we'll inherit if we're saved in Christ. Great. As we begin to realize, if we just handled that a little bit, if we didn't waste our time, oh, I wait, oh, I, it could have, it could have been. See, some are entrusted with special privileges, some are not. Some reign with Christ, some won't be. Some will be rich, some poor, some heavenly treasures of their own, some not. And we have a whole briefing package on inheritance reward. I'm just trying to give you some highlights here. Let me tell you something that I cannot find a single scholar so far that agrees with me. I have a view that I'm going to share with you, but I want you to understand it's a speculation on my part. It's something I'm still researching. And I have to tell you candidly and honestly, and I travel with some really great, one of the blessings in my life is that I have had the privilege and still do of traveling with some pretty fabulous scholars. And I have to tell you candidly, they do not agree with my view I'm about to present. Most scholars that take the Bible seriously think the body of Christ, which is an idiom for the church, the believers, and the bride of Christ are synonyms. That the church is the body of Christ, no problem. That the church is the bride of Christ, yes, it includes that. 
See, I have a belief growing tentatively. I think the bride of Christ is a subset of the body. I think Eve was taken out of the side of Adam. I think when Eliezer was dispatched to get a bride for Isaac, he had to go to their own people. And he went there with ten camels. And there's a whole thing about that I'll spare you with. But the point is, I suspect that the term bride of Christ is a collective term for the winners at the right end of the spectrum. Some of us will be there, and we got there by the skin of our teeth. The, the thief on the cross might be one of those. He was saved a few moments before he died. I also suspect he might be surprised at how many credits he did roll up because of the people that came to Christ through his testimony recorded in Scripture. So I don't know how that's going to be about. But the point is, certainly there's going to be people that are saved barely and have had nothing to show for it. No fruit to give the... They're saved. They're there. They'll be in, the, they'll be in heaven. They'll be in the kingdom. But with Zippo. Huh? At the other end of the spectrum, I think there'll be a collective that are the bride. And uh, now, as we look at that, we know that the marriage of the Lamb occurs in the Father's house. The marriage supper is celebrated when He sets up the kingdom because the Old Testament saints are present and they get resurrected at the second coming, which tells me that those two events are separated and Arnold Fruchtenbaum, one of the great Hebrew Christian scholars, agrees with me. He pointed that out, in fact. And so there are some issues there that uh, obviously need more study. See, the marriage takes place in the Father's house. The marriage supper takes place in the kingdom, which includes the Old Testament saints and the friends of the bridegroom. John the Baptist referred himself that way. He see, John Baptist was Old Testament saved, not New Testament saved. And uh, so, in any case... There are, there are a number of different judgments. The Bema seed is one thing, very different than the sheep and goat. The more you study the sheep and goats, the more questions it'll raise because it's mortal people being judged by their works, strangely. And then, of course, the great white throne is the big wrap-up at the end. But uh, so we, those are all studies. I won't take the time here, but I commend you to, to dig in and get into that. So, Okay. Behold, Jesus says, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Not talking about salvation here. He's talking about your rewards. Very different thing. Now, don't get in, don't, you're not under the law. The law, not only are you not under the law, the law has been abandoned. That's the whole lesson of the book of Romans and so on. The Messiah is the fulfillment of the Torah. Avoid a works trip. This is not a call to get a checklist and start working hard because none of that will count. Everything you do of your own energy counts zero. What counts is what you've done by leading the Spirit. You walk by the Spirit, not the flesh. What counts before the Lord, what will count before the thing, is those things that the Spirit led you to do that you acquitted yourself honorably with. Sin no longer reigns in your life. If you're an unbeliever, you are a bondage to sin. If you're a believer, you have the power to overcome the sin by invoking the Holy Spirit. You need to know how to do that, and you need to do it faithfully. But you walk with Him. What does that mean? You don't get ahead of Him, you don't fall behind. That's the trick, to stay in step. And uh, so, so how about us? All through this epistle, all through the Scripture, is the centrality of Christ. You are forgiven by Him. His peace is in your hearts. 
His word dwells in us. Boy, that's a staggering thing to think through. His name is to be our primary identification. He is all in all. And we all, he's also sufficient. You and I have in Christ all that we need. These are all rebuttals to the Gnostic heresies that the whole epistle has been dealing with. We've gone through the uh, last half of chapter 3. And so for the next time, we're going to explore the whole chapter 4. It's, it's not that long, and we'll be able to do that quite comfortably. The final session will be, I want you to study carefully Colossians 4 and review your notes on the entire epistle for the next, last, section, uh, last session. So with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for the extremes that you have gone to that we might live. We thank you, Father, for the justification that was completely provided by the gift of your Son on that cross some 2,000 years ago. We thank you, Father, for redeeming us. And yet, Father, we also ask you through your Holy Spirit and through your Word to guide us, lead us, that we indeed might, be, might grow in grace in Him and that we might be more pleasing in Your sight. We pray, Father, that You make, make us sensitive to that inheritance that You have set aside for each of us. Help us, Father, to appropriate it. Help us, Father, to exercise that faithfulness that we might indeed attain to it. Help us, Father, to be fruitful for You not by power nor by might, but by thy spirit, Father. As we commit ourselves without any reservations whatsoever into your hands, in the name of the coming King, Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. God bless you. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.